Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. On August 30th, 2023, Gabon joined the list of recent successful coup d'etat. The armed forces of the two presidents, Ali Bongo, making Gabon the seventh country since 2020 to witness a successful military coup. The landmass of countries under military rule in the Sahel space, including Niger, Mali, Guinea, Chad, Sudan and Burkina Faso, stretches 3,500 miles and forms the world's longest corridor of military rule. Causes and perceptions of coups vary significantly. Yet, while some coups have attracted international condemnation, others have not. Furthermore, citizens in those countries have celebrated these military takeovers. It was then unsurprising that President Bongo's plea that his friends worldwide make noise turn into a musical meme on social media. Poverty, high youth unemployment, overstaying in power, foreign interference and harsh climate conditions have played pivotal roles in shaping the dynamics of this development. Consequently, the schools should not be viewed through a one-size-fits-all policy lens as each coup is unique, different, and complex. Joining me on Into Africa to discuss this development are Ms. Kamisa Kamara, Senior Advisor at the United States Institute of Peace and former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Mali, having served under the late President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, who was overthrown in 2020 by Colonel Asimi Goita. And Professor Ken Opalo, who is an associate professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Kamisa, Ken, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, coups, we've seen plenty of them now. We used to have a lot of them back in the day. We thought they went away. And now we see that they're making a comeback. Why now? And are these just politics by other means? Kamisa. I think there are many theories around the reason why these coups have made a comeback. Back in 2016, I remember drafting an op-ed for the Washington Post in which my main argument was that coups were outfashioned, that they were passe, and that the new fashion was constitutional coups. No need to say that I was wrong at the time, but I think the context in which I drafted that op-ed was that we had seen a drop in the global number of coups for maybe 20, 30 years. And some scholars have actually attributed to this decline in, in the number of coups by this international anti-coup norm that has emerged post-Cold War. And so many international organizations such as the African Union and some regional organizations such as the ECOWAS have 
made their anti-coup norms quite stringent. And so we thought that that was the main reason why military officers were not conducting coups. And here we are in 2022, 2023, and we're seeing this confused state of affairs in the Sahel region where we have an important terrorist threat. We have international partners in the mix trying to help the local militaries curb that threat. And we have those leaders who are being toppled, overthrown by military leaders. Why is that? Well, the first information that we get usually after those coups are the initial declarations of the coup makers, right? When they take over, they usually make a statement on national television saying, these are the reasons why we're conducting the coups. And my personal opinion is that the reasons they decline are usually for international consumption more than for the domestic consumption, because they know exactly why they took over in a coup. And most of the time, those reasons that they mention in their initial declarations are very different from the one they enumerate when they speak in their local languages. I think there are many reasons why military leaders, military officers conduct coups. I think that they have a clear understanding of the international context in which they cook up these coups and conduct them, and they know how to speak to the international community, but their main reasons are usually very domestic. And I'm even inclined to say that they sometimes have very personal ambitions that are not made public in these initial declarations. Ken? I totally agree with Ms. Kamara that individual coup leaders definitely have personal ambition and personal goals when they pursue coups. But, you know, the political scientists in me is also interested in this sort of broader context that makes them think and believe that coups are the best way to pursue those personal interests. And I think when we ask that question, then we begin to see why maybe now is a time period in which we're seeing sort of greater permissiveness vis-a-vis -vis coups. And I think when we ask that question, you know, in my view, the answers that we get are that, one, you know, these states facing increasingly almost insurmountable security threats, which mean that the militaries will be at the forefront of politics and in many ways will outpace their politics and the ability of civilians to control the people with the guns. For now, you know, let's table the coup in Gabon for a second and just consider the Sahel, right? I think the Sahel, after the collapse of Libya and the flow of arms and ideology and insecurity, right, was primed for these types of outcomes in the sense that as militaries were more involved in the fight against insurgencies, they were more likely to pose a challenge to civilian rule. This is one factor that may explain why now. The other structural factor is, of course, economic, and it's related to dissatisfaction with civilian governments and the inability to address citizens' material concerns, which, you know, in many ways, right, the Sahelian security crisis also exposed the inability of governments to address not just security, but also economic concerns of citizens. And so when civilians celebrate coups, right, it's, it's a reminder that, you know, the coup plotters who, yes, in many ways, pursuing their personalist ambitions, right, know that the public will be receptive to their intervention, in part because they know that the system has failed the public. So in my perspective, especially in the case of the Sahel, but also, you know, thinking about Guinea and, and Gabon, 
right? The big question is why after 30 years of experimentation with electoralism, right, civilians in many African countries are still very much open to military interventions in their politics. And I think it's the answer there, you know, comes down to the inability the, the inability of democracy or elections, because, you know, what many of these countries had were not really democracies, but electoral processes, right, the inability of electoral processes to deliver on citizens' demands, which then means that when you get a big shock like insecurity in the Sahel or economic crises in Guinea or, you know, an aging autocrat who wants to go for a third term or someone who's unwell, again, in Gabon, who wants to extend his rule, right, it becomes easier for the men, men and women in uniform to step in and say, we're here to right the ship. And the public will respond positively to that. Unlike many commentators out there, I am sympathetic to the publics who celebrate these coups because I think, and the surveys tell us this, right? The Afrobarometer data is very clear that publics in the region are very much against military rule. More than 60% of respondents across the board in many countries are opposed to military rule. And so the celebrations are not really support for military rule. I think we should see them as indictments of the previous systems which have not really delivered. And therefore, we should see these coups as an invitation to think more broadly about what we should do in terms of engendering meaningful political development in the region. One, you know, we should invest in strong states. Two, we should invest in actual economic growth and improving, you know, Africans' economic well-being. And then three, of course, we should invest in political institutionalization. And by here, you know, I mean doing a lot more than just holding supposedly free and fair elections every four or five years, right? It should be, you know, serious attention to party building, serious attention to local government, things that really provide Africans with avenues for self-government. Otherwise, we'll either keep having coups in the same countries or the contagion will spread outside of the main affected countries now, which have been affected for historical reasons. They've been historically weak. They, they haven't sort of consolidated their politics in the ways that some of the sort of non-affected countries have had over the last 30 years. But the risk of contagion is real because the structural challenges that enabled coups to happen in these, in these countries very much present in the other countries, albeit, you know, to lesser degrees. So a few points here. One, Tamisa mentioned personal ambitions of these officers. Can you mention the reality, which is the context, right? If you're in Mali and your officers are spending most of the time up front fighting terrorists and others, if the military bases and police stations are being attacked left and right, they are literally at the forefront of that fight. But at the same time, you have a, if you have a government that is not paying attention, or maybe is paying attention but is incapable of delivering the support that the armed forces need, because that happens as well, right? In a country like the United States, our military fight the war, the wars 10,000 miles away from here. The average American actually doesn't understand the frustration of the U.S. military because they're so far off. We read about the memoirs after they come home, or you have a senator like the late Senator McCain who goes on co in Congress and raise hell in support of the troops and what they need. So we are insulated for this kind of frustrations. Can you speak a little bit, Kamisa, on that experience? You were in the government. When we talk about this kind of frustration, this gap 
I'm sure people in government mean to do well. Nobody takes a job just to win the country. But there are limitations in what they can do. And then, Ken, I would like to delve a little more on how do we deal with the social contract? Because I think there's a failure there that we cannot deny. Vemba, thank you for that important question. I think unless you actually work in one of those governments, who it's really hard to understand the limitations and the challenges that those governments face on an everyday basis. Every time I hear, well, these governments are not delivering for their people, I just cringe because it's like you have no idea what you're talking about. It's almost an impossible task. There you are, you're considered a strategic country in the middle of a very volatile region. You have international partners who come in and promise to help you, but they each have an agenda and you as the government, you realize that your security at your survival also depends on them. And so you better please them, but you're pleasing five, six, seven different clients who may have contradicting agendas and programs, but you still have to please them. And then at the same time, because you're reconstructing your army, you're devoting 30 to 40% of your national budget to defense, to the defense sector. And that is to the detriment of education, health, et cetera, et cetera. Those public services that the citizens need. So which one comes first? Do you provide them with security first? Do you reconstruct your military? Or do you provide the health, the education, etc., that the citizens actually need? And this is a balancing act that, as a government minister, you face on an everyday basis. And having been in government, I sometimes even felt that I was being completely schizophrenic because I had to have one conversation with this partner telling him this, and then the following day I was having another conversation with that partner and I was saying all the contrary, right? And it wasn't even my willingness. I knew that I had to please them because my country depended on those international partners. And so delivering in these types of environment, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's almost a magic trick that you have to pull sometimes. Ken? Thank you very much, Kamisa, for those two amazing points, right? I almost feel like I should cite you in, in, in some of my papers, you know, this discussion in some of my papers already, because you make two points that many people in, on the continent and the continent's partners perennially fail to appreciate, which is the fact that, right, it takes a lot more resources than people are willing to put on the table to address the challenges faced by the country's regions, right? So that, you know, you often hear a country that says fighting insurgents, it's supposed to host elections. Elections require money, right? Not just to run the elections themselves, but politics is expensive, right? Promising to invest in public goods and services for the public so that a country that's already cash-trapped having to spend 40% of the budget on the military, that budget, as you said, has to come from somewhere else. And so when we see people in the streets post-coup, right, those are people who part of their budget went into the 40%, and they're feeling it in their local clinics, in the schools, in the services that are missing and not being available to the citizens. 
So from their perspective, right, not everyone is experiencing the insecurity at the same time or with the same in intensity. And so it's not easy for governments to convince them that, hey, sorry, you know, we'll close the schools because we're fighting a war, right? And governments are often not willing to do that in part because of the electoral sort of incentives at play. And so the one thing I'd like to say is when we're thinking about the social contract, right, we have to think about it in, in these terms as opposed to how we often think about it, which is that, you know, either the militaries are crazy for taking over power, which some of them often are because of their own aggrandizement and, you know, refusal to accept sort of civilian incentives. When we see militaries take power, we need to ask, you know, what is it that permits them or makes them think that they, they should take that power, right? And I think that often reflects the implied social contract, that they know that citizens are feeling the pain and therefore citizens are willing to tolerate military rule. The other side is that we shouldn't be too harsh on politicians. I recently wrote a blog post in which the U.S. ambassador to Liberia was complaining that li Liberian politicians are too corrupt. And one of the examples was that they spent $64 million on the legislature, right? And so, you know, I just tried to put the Liberian budget in perspective, right? Liberia as a country has a smaller budget than Georgetown University, right? And this is a country of millions of people, right? So our governments don't have the resources they need. And so when, you know, and it's not unreasonable to spend $64 million on a whole country's legislature, right? The question for us is, how do we grow our economies to provide the resources needed to do the many things that we're doing, including providing security and processes of state building? And then lastly, I'd like to sort of emphasize the second point you made, which I think also speaks to this question of the social contract. And this is on foreign influence in, in our region uh, and in the Sahel, right? Because I think part of the reason why we've had 60 years of sort of perennially weak states in the region is because of over-reliance on foreign assistance, being vulnerable to foreign influence, whether benevolent or malign, right? Because being dependent on foreigners often means that elites are not as serious as it could be if they were on their own in tackling the issues related to the social contract and how to build strong and capable states in our context, right? And so... In addition to the bigger discussion on state building, economic, sustainable economic growth, and thinking about political institutionalization, one of my hopes in this sort of time period, uh, especially with regard to Francophone African countries, is that the current coup crisis will also force us to have those difficult conversations about you know legacies of neocolonialism and foreign dependence, which have kept our countries weak because they've often created conditions that only allow, you know, the most venal people to rise to the top, whether they're elected or not, which then stifles processes of political development and, and only, you know, create opportunities for future coups. That raises the question of the very nature of the military on one end. What kind of militaries do these African countries have? We need to remember that these militaries have a colonial history and most of them very much keep colonial DNA. In other words, it was either an army of the North or the army of Christian, of Muslims, or army of favors one specific ethnic group that was co-opted. And these armies had one mission, to subjugate the local population so they don't rise against the colonial masters, so to speak. And then on the other hand is the very nature of our state in Africa. What does that mean to have a state? 
we just talked about the social contract. What does it even mean within the reality that we deal with in a lot of these young countries, which just 60 years ago were communists, without no social contract? There was no social contract. The governor general in Bamako in, or in Abidjan or in Dakar, they didn't give a hoot about any social contract for anyone. His mission was to please the crown somewhere. Or um, then one day you become prime minister and they tell you about the social contract. So, Camisa, you were nodding a little bit there. Any reaction to this? And then we go back to Ken. Definitely a reaction to it because what you just mentioned and also Ken also alluded to it is that when we look at our, and really I'm generalizing, but when we look at our African states, what electoral processes have done was put in place legal individuals. So from a legal perspective, they ought to be there. They're allowed it to be there. But this issue of legitimacy comes back often and often. Legality and legitimacy are two different things. And what we're seeing is that the presidents who are being toppled are legal, whether nationally or internationally, but most of the time they lose a lot of their, their legitimacy because of the international interference. The international partners erode their authority and they even sometimes are even able to delete the main reasons why those people were elected in the first place. We even forget about why they are there, right? And so, yeah, to me, this is a central issue. Who is legitimate in the local context should also be legal on the international scene. And it's the two that we have not been able to put together. That's a perfect way to put it, right? This, the variance between legitimacy and legality. And, you know, I mean, I think, unfortunately for everyone involved, right, this problem is not going away. So we've had 60 years of relative peace, despite our many conflicts, right? It could have been much worse, but we were lucky in the sense that a lot of our region was still very rural, uneducated, very, very young. People had avenues for making livelihoods in the countryside and not in the cities. We, over the next 30 years, we're going to add a billion more people to the region. Most of the population will be urban. All the young people have phones and know what's happening elsewhere. So the notion that you will have uh, legal persons in power who basically operate as nicer governor generals with their eyes in foreign capitals will not work, right? People need to make a living and they will ask for uh, leaders who promise that. Now, if we don't have civilians who are willing to take up that mantle and be willing to sometimes offend their foreign partners in paying attention to actually improving the livelihoods of their, of their people, right? We'll have Ibrahim Traoré's being the messengers of the youth who are excluded and neglected. I think that as offensive as, as Ibrahim Traoré's may seem, right, I think they're messengers of a truth that we should be paying attention to. The end goal should not be to just get rid of the men and women in uniform, but to you know ask why is it that people are willing to give them a say. If we ask that question, we'll perhaps begin the hard work of doing the right thing, which is rebuilding the African state, reestablishing the social contract, 
and you know paying attention to real institutional building beyond just elections for election's sake. But in this context, do we expect too much of the military? What I mean, the military, they live in the same society as the civilians, right? So if the average salary is $50 a month for, for a captain or for a colonel or a major, and it's $25 for the teacher, they're suffering the same pain. And we're asking, as we were talking in the case of Mali or Burkina Faso, then we're talking about this captain who's making $50, who needs to go up front and fight the war. And all the time, all the while trying to put his kids in school, uh, which we've just established that may not be there, or may be substandard quality and all that. Are we expecting more of them? Are we failing them in the same way we're failing the rest of the society? Because some of the narratives we hear, you know, we like to talk a lot about misinformation, disinformation, this strong feeling that this military are doing it for the money or they have access to, to the state coffers. Most militaries we know in Africa don't have access to state coffers, but they have nephews, they have cousins, they have a wife, they have kids, they have to feed their families. So are we expecting more of the military? Are we, are we analyzing this properly? I think I would say that the part of the problem, right, is that the failure of the social contract, right, also means that in most countries, political elites like to operate like the militaries are not part of the regular population that needs to be part of the contract. And this is perhaps why some of them feel the need to intervene, right? Because even in countries like Ghana, for example, even Kenya, right, the military is almost because of the need to actively depoliticize them, they're almost always set aside with the senior brass getting, you know, special treatment and sort of being given incentives to keep their subordinates out of politics. Contrast that with, say, a country like this, where there's definitely inclusion of the military in, in, in American public life, right? Yes, they're not being paid as much as perhaps they could be, right? And, you know, we know all the problems with the American VA, but at least there's an avenue for thinking and talking about the military in a way that reinforces the commitment to the Constitution and the reality of the inclusion in the social contract. And I think more broadly, this speaks to the strategies that our regions have historically used to coup proof, which is to pay off the top brass and keep them out of politics or, you know, have multiple competing units instead of just straightforwardly having a social contract based on the constitution that sort of allows them to be paid amounts commensurate to the state of the economy, but without the risk of them taking over power. I mean, so are we expecting the, the military to uphold the social contract or the constitutional order, which we hear a lot about, when in fact neither one exists in a lot of these places? It's a difficult question you're asking because my that's really a personal opinion. I feel that the way the U.S. is organized, where you have an army that is subordinate to civilian authority, should be how it works. Otherwise, then why don't we just have military leaders as the head of the countries, if that's what the population is looking for? Because what I'm seeing, especially in, in West Africa, is that the population is so patient with those military leaders a civilian government would not get away with a tenth of what those military governments are actually doing when they are at the head of those countries. I'm just wondering, 
I think with the military come these ideals of discipline and modernization and strength that a civilian government sometimes and actually quite often does not display. Is that enough to rule a country? Maybe that's what the people want. I don't, I don't like what I'm saying, but the way those citizens welcome those military governments when they topple, they overthrew a legal government, they self-appointed themselves leaders and you applaud them and you're happy that they're there. You didn't even choose them. You've never met them before. You don't even know where they're coming from, but they're just, they just say we're, village, we're from the military and you like them. It raises a lot of questions about perceptions and yes, citizens do need public services, but there is something more that these military governments seem to offer that a civilian government cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they certainly have the advantage of being sort of outsiders and the new people right on the block, which perhaps mesmerizes the public. But, you know, I mean, I think I tend to believe that public opinion matters. And I think the average person in the Sahel is onto something here, that their welcoming of, or their sort of not welcoming, but tolerance of military rule at this point in time should scare us, right, into sitting back and asking why. I think it suggests really that things are really bad. People, some of them old enough to remember the bad old, you know, pre-early 90s days of the really terrible era of military rule and autocracy before the 90s, when people like that, you know, are willing to tolerate military rule, it suggests that things have gone awry and it's time to reset. And resetting, I think, will require less haste in the direction of, quote-unquote, restoring constitutional order and, you know, just maybe taking a time out to ask why and also forget the, the din from the international community and focus inwardly to sort of ask, you know, what is it about are different countries that makes them susceptible to these types of takeover. Because I think if we don't answer that question with the countries in the Sahel, right, the next countries up will be the other countries on the West African coast that have also experienced, you know, economic crises. And the coming sort of economic crises might be as bad as the 80s one. I mean, I still hope and think that Maybe things won't be as bad for a variety of reasons, but we should acknowledge that we are now several years into a a period of economic slowdown, which will put added pressure on governments, not just in the Sahel, but in the other sort of countries in the region, which then means that if coups become a thing and they're not addressed, and we know specifically why the Sahelian states have mostly been vulnerable to this so far, contagion may mean that they spread elsewhere. And then we'll be back to the autocratic era. And the last point I'll say to this is, you know, I often see the people who want to be overly optimistic citing the fact that, you know, almost two-thirds of Africans oppose military rule. But people forget that 53% of Africans are also okay with militaries intervening in politics when politicians fail. And that includes even the middle class, right? I'm sure we've, we've all had WhatsApp discussions in polite society where some people are like, yeah, you know, this was a good coup versus, you know, a bad coup, etc. So no one is immune from the temptation to trust that the militaries will provide solutions. 
I see that as a good sort of medicine that we should take to make us rethink what we've been doing over the last 30 years. Because I think the promise of political liberalization has not been realized. And I think, I think African elites are on the hook for those failures. They are the ones to blame and not the people who will become tolerant of coups. In that context then, what do you make, both of you, either one of you, what do you make of the international reaction to coups? We've seen sanctions, we've seen freezing of assets of these leaders, we've seen a bunch of, an entire spectrum of this. I was looking at some data from the 60s and the 70s where people like Mobutu declassified cables when Mobutu staged the coups, that generation. And the position for a lot of countries was that we recognize state, not government. So therefore, we're not continue engaging with these countries. This culture of sanctioning and antagonizing people, what we're seeing between France and Niger, for instance, I'm not sure how productive that kind of discourse and statement, what does do? It doesn't promote any harmony and it penalizes the people of Niger. Kamisa. Yeah, so what those international reactions do is that they muddy the waters and it prevents us from actually looking at the coup for what it is. Uh, it prevents us from looking at the domestic dynamics that led to the coup. It prevents us from looking at the genuine reactions from the citizens on the ground and analyzing why they're accepting of these coups. Honestly, I feel like the international reactions have not been helpful recently. And in the case of Niger, what we've seen is like a, a, little, a little war between France and the United States over OD needs to call the shots. And it's just been totally unhelpful to the ECOWAS, for example, which should be the leader in that region. It's, again, you know, this issue of legitimacy. I feel like the reactions by France and the United States have sort of delegitimized the ECOWAS as the leader of the situation. So to me, the international reactions have been totally un unhelpful when they are way too much sometimes. We haven't really talked about the, the coup in Gabon, but there is a reason why the coup in Gabon doesn't even come up in this discussion. There has been this huge debate about good coup, bad coup, less bad, better, whatever. Salvation coups. Exactly. It's interesting, right? Because one of the interesting threads that I've been following in these discussions is A, the international community's reaction to the Sahelian coups, uh, especially in Niger. I think Niger elicited a lot more reaction, mostly because, you know, it was the last linchpin. Both France and the U.S. couldn't really place their bets on unpredictable Chad. So Niger seemed like, you know, the place to place that bet. You know, on the one hand, because... The new government will undoubtedly be friendly to France, so France hasn't caused too much trouble or noise on that front. And the U.S., right, has deferred to France on, on that front. But I think in Niger, right, the reaction really puts in stark relief this problem that often international reaction will represent the interests of whoever's reacting on the global stage, right? More often than not, right, especially at a time when people are very prickly about their sovereignty, and independence, right? Reactions have basically pushed the public to the corner of the coup makers. Bazoum has lost all legitimacy. Now, you know, even if ECOWAS were to restore him, he would be seen as a puppet of, you know, foreign governments. It almost makes you wonder 
how is it that analysts and policymakers are not seeing things from the perspective that they ought to be using to understand the situation on the ground or how the public perceives of their reaction? I guess maybe it'll take time for everyone to learn that the last 60 years are not predictive of how the next 60 years will be like in the region when you have publics that want more from their governments. Quite frankly, they look around the world and they see what self-assured, self-respecting nations are doing. And they don't like the fact that their countries or their elites often don't project that. Some of them may even prefer to be poor and free than be seen as, you know, constant, constantly tied to foreign countries that see them as mere clients in, in sort of global conflicts. The sort of discussion around Russia in the Sahel, right, has often sort of highlighted this concern that many Sahelians have been very happy to wave Russian flags, almost as trolls, right, who are, you know, trolling France and the U.S., because I doubt that they're really pro-Russian in the way that perhaps I read in the press, right? It's more a rejection of the last 60 years and what it's produced. On that note, my friends, I would like to thank you for joining us on Into Africa today, Kamisa Kamara, Special Advisor at the United States Institute of Peace and former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Mali, Ken Opalo, Associate Professor in the School of Foreign Service, at the Georgetown University. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.